one. Uh, you know we've been in uh, the, taking the past few weeks to to study different approaches to Revelation, as well as different views of the end times, so that we would have this framework for how to actually interpret the Book of Revelation. And and I think now we're ready to begin our verse by verse study through the book. We talked about possibly talking about the mark of the beast this evening, but we're going to save that for when we actually encounter it in the book. So I think we've done at least an adequate job setting the framework and the foundation for actually studying this book. And so uh, when we come to Revelation, you, you have all sorts of questions. And it's interesting, throughout all time, I think everybody knows God has always been at work in the world, right? We, we know that God is up to something, God's doing something, He's always working. Um, we don't always know what it is or, or why He's doing the things He's doing or what's taking Him so long from our perspective to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. And, and so we, we are filled with all of these types of questions. And, and you come to Revelation and you, you realize that there were all these Old Testament prophecies that were talking about what was going to happen in the last days, right? You might think about Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 specifically and the visions that he received where he said they were visions about what's going to happen in the last days. And then you come to Revelation and you're like, okay, God, um, we got all that, but can we get a better picture, please? Like, can, can we get a clearer idea of what's going to happen? Can you maybe tell us what the plan is? We've been waiting for this big reveal to take place. And it kind of reminded me, I don't know, have y'all seen the show Fixer Upper? Anybody in here? Yeah, we got a couple people. Okay, right. So Anna and I, we used to watch that show uh, a good bit when we have time, and we don't anymore, so we don't watch that show anymore. So, um, But when you did, what I always found interesting, right, is you have Chip and Joanna, and they would take uh, couples to see these houses and stuff, typically like three houses, and, and they're in this buying process, and and they have to decide on one house, but all of them have their problems, right? Like, there's not a house that's perfect. And when they are in this buying process, it's always interesting if you watch their faces because the couple is like, I'm about to spend a lot of money to buy a house, and this is not the house that I want necessarily. And they're walking through, and they see all the problems with the house, right? They're like, okay, it's got foundation issues. Uh, this is going to have to be replaced. We're going to have to tear down this one. Like, they look at the house, and all they see are all the problems, and they're wondering, how are you going to do anything with this house, right? Like, they, this house should not be sold to anyone. I don't know how you're going to do something with this house, but I, I'm going to trust that you are going to do something. And then they get to the part of the show where uh, Joanna sits down with them, and she brings out her tablet, and what does she do? She, it's the big reveal, right? She's, she shows them this virtual image of what she's going to do to the house. This is the plan. This is how we're going to fix this. This is what we're going to do in this area. This is all the plans going forward. And when the people see the plans, what happened? Oh, their face just lights up, right? Like, this is great. Like, I didn't think you could do anything with this house. And yet, now we have this clear understanding of what's going to take place and how it's going to look and what the final product is going to be like. It's the big reveal. And that's what we get when we come to the book of Revelation. God has spent the entire Bible giving us hints and kind of glimpses and pictures and and these ideas, and he gets to Revelation and he says, okay, you want to know what the plan is? Here it is. Now, it's it's not necessarily revealed in the way that we want it to be revealed, right? Like, I think 
I think one theologian said something along the lines of when he was asked his thoughts on the book of Revelation or, or the purpose or meaning of Revelation, he said, the book of Revelation is where uh, the Apostle John concealed everything that he knew. <laughs> and so uh, that's what it can feel like sometimes, right? You come to Revelation and it's the big reveal, but it's not exactly the reveal that we were hoping for. And, and yet the, 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 we see all the problems in our world, right? We know that this is the big reveal, but what happens? You look at the world, and you go, this world's filled with sin. This world is broken. The governments are corrupt. People are really evil today. People are doing unspeakable things to one another. And you, you just you get this picture of the world, and you look at it, and you go, God, what on earth are you going to do with this place? <laughs> right? Like, I don't know if anything can be done at this point, which is why some people say, God, just burn it all, bring the fire from heaven, let's be done with this place, you know? Like, you look at it and you're like, what on earth could you possibly do? And God says in Revelation, I'll show you. And we get this really cool unveiling. And I really like the way that this theologian, Vern Poitras, put it. He said, Revelation isn't meant to tickle our fancies. It's meant to strengthen our hearts. And I think that's a good quote to remember as we study Revelation, even with how confusing it can be sometimes and how we might not always understand everything in it that it's not meant to tickle our fancies, it's meant to strengthen our hearts as believers in Christ. And that's really the whole point of the first three verses, which is probably as far as we're going to get this evening. But the, it's the, the unveiling of God's plan is meant to strengthen and assure His people throughout all of life's circumstances. That's the, the whole point of the first three verses. The unveiling of God's plan is meant to strengthen and assure his people throughout all of life's circumstances. And so I want to just start by, by reading verse 1. This is what the Bible says in Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And we need to remember the, the Greek word for revelation here that you see up there is the Greek word uh, apocalypse, which is... Uh, why this is sometimes referred to as the Apocalypse of John. So if you find an older Bible, uh, especially a KJV, many times it'll just be called the Apocalypse of John. And, and it's an interesting word, and we've talked about it already some, but it's the word revelation or apocalypse, it literally just means an unveiling or a revelation, right? A revealing. And, and it's, you think about maybe a, a bride on her wedding day, walking down the aisle and she's covered with a veil and you can't really make out her face that clearly at all. But then what happens? You lift the veil and then you see her. And it's, it's this beautiful uh, image of a, of a bride being unveiled for the, the groom to take her in. That's what we have in the book of Revelation. Here is God's plan for the future and for redemptive history. And it is being unveiled for God's people so that we can behold it and appreciate it. And, and so uh, it's the idea that something was hidden but now it has been revealed uh, to God's people. And this word is highly connected to the book of Daniel, right? We talked about Daniel a little bit earlier because it's the same Greek word that is used in the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament for the visions and the revelation that God gave to Daniel. So if you remember Daniel chapter 2, and I'm sure all of you do, all right? Uh, do you remember Nebuchadnezzar has a problem? What's his problem? He has a dream, right? He has a dream, and his problem is he doesn't understand it. And he gets all his wise men together and all of his uh, magicians and people, 
and they don't understand it. But then God comes to Daniel after Daniel prays to the Lord, and God reveals or gives Daniel this apocalypse, this understanding of what the dream actually is. And if you remember the dream, what did he dream of? Anybody remember? Yeah, the statue, an image, right? So it's an image, its head is gold, its chest and arms were silver, the middle and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly clay. And then what did he see? It was a a stone, right? This stone, not cut by human hands, that comes and it, it strikes the feet of the image and they begin to crumble and then the whole image comes down and it breaks into little pieces and the wind comes and drives away the pieces so they're never found again. And then something really, really interesting happens. What happens to the stone? Anybody remember? That's my... Yeah, right, yeah. That's my, my uh, interpretive dance of the stone <laughs> became a mountain, and that mountain began to encompass the whole world, right? So that's what Nebuchadnezzar saw, and that's what Daniel saw. It sounds a lot like the visions you encounter in Revelation, right? It, it's stuff that, on the surface, it doesn't make a lot of sense, because if you're thinking literally... You're like, okay, I've got to wait for this statue, and it's got to have all these different parts, and then a stone, and all this kind of stuff. And that's just not how Daniel interpreted it, right? Like, he, he comes along, and he doesn't give a literal interpretation. It, he literally says that this dream pertains to what must take place in the last days, in the end times. And he interprets the dream symbolically. He says that the different materials represent different kingdoms, and the stone actually represents the kingdom of God that's going to crush all other kingdoms and then grow to encompass the whole world. And that's a really cool uh, interpretation. There's a really cool revelation that God gives to Daniel. And so uh, revelation in apocalyptic writing refers to visions that are primarily communicated through pictures and symbols. Right? And that's, it's interesting to think about because when we're reading the majority of the Bible, we should be interpreting it literally unless we come to something and we have to ask the question, is there a reason to interpret it symbolically, right? That's how we would, if you're reading First or Second Kings, you're not going to interpret that symbolically, right? Like very straightforward, very literal. And if there ever comes a time, you're like, okay, maybe, maybe this needs to be interpreted symbolically. Um, well, it's just the opposite when you come to Revelation. As you read Revelation, you should... You should have preference towards a symbolic interpretation unless there comes a time when you ask the question, is there a reason to interpret literally? So it's kind of this paradigm shift of how we interpret the Bible and we should be interpreting it symbolically uh, through these pictures because that's how it's revealed, right? God, it's really interesting that God would do this because we have all these expectations of what we want from God. Like, hey, God, I just want a roadmap. If you could just very clearly, line by line, tell me what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. A timeline would be really nice, what to expect, all that kind of stuff. That's what we want. And God says, okay, uh, I'm going to write like a fantasy novel for you, basically. And he gives us all these pictures and cool ideas and symbols that we are then to try to piece together in terms of the story of the Bible. And, and it's something uh, that really interesting here where John is actually changing the Daniel quote. Did you notice that in verse 1? It's still on the screen. But God gave Daniel a revelation of the things that must take place uh, in the latter days or in the last days. 
Well, you come to Revelation, and the Bible says here that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which uh, he gave eventually to John, uh, which must soon take place. And, and we'll actually see that in just a little bit. But it's what soon must take place. So he changes that phrase, the latter days, to what must soon take place. And, and so we have to ask the question, well, is there a reason to believe that we are now, as Christians, currently living in the last days, right? Because how many times have you encountered someone as a Christian and they're like, I want to talk about the end times? Yeah, a lot? A lot for me, okay? Uh, it gets asked a lot. Or people want to know, hey, when are the last days coming? And I think they're typically surprised when my answer is, we're in them. These are the last days. And this is actually what the New Testament says time and time again. It'll be on the screen, 1 John two eighteen says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Hebrews 1-2, but in these last days, now, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then you come to Jude 1, 17-21, And this is what Jude says. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. He seems to be indicating that these people, or or, or this ungodly people following their ungodly passions, they are present now, creating divisions Now, and he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom, who's the on whom there? First to the hour, meaning us, right? On whom? The end of the ages has come. So what does this mean? When you put all this together, what's the conclusion? We're living in the end times. People want to know when they're coming? They're here. (laughs) They actually started with Jesus' ascension back into heaven. As soon as Jesus did that, last hour started. We are in the last days, living in the, the end times. But there's a common objection, right? There's this common objection, and people will sometimes say, well, well, we can't be living in the last days. We can't be living in the end times because John specifically said that these things must soon take place. And he wrote this in the first century. So, it's been over 2,000 years. And because it's been over 2,000 years, that kind of disqualifies the idea that we're living in the last days because that's not necessarily soon, right? So that's the, the objection. John says these things must soon take place, but it's been 2,000 years. That's not very soon, is it? No, it's not very soon. You can agree with that. That's fine. But, but there are two responses, right? So the first one that I would point you to, and you're just going to have to stick with our study for this, is, is I want to show you as we go through Revelation that the events foretold in Revelation have been going on repeatedly since the time of its writing that these aren't always far-off prophecies about what's going to happen in the future. It's actually this cyclical cycle, which is redundant, but it's this cycle that continues to happen repeatedly throughout all time. And so I would say that many of the things written in there have already taken place, 
repeatedly throughout history. But the other thing to remember is that the Bible specifically says that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. So it's been over 2,000 years since Christ ascended back into heaven. Therefore, in the mind of God, two days have taken place. That's still pretty soon, all things considered, right? Like if you say, hey, I'm coming to visit you soon, and you're not there within two days, I'm still thinking, that's still pretty soon. You know, you show up day three, that falls within that timeline. So, so we have to understand that from our perspective, no, it might not be soon how we define soon, but from the perspective of God, it's still very soon and very early. About two days, metaphorically, symbolically, have passed by in the mind of God. And so uh, that's, that's what this, this is referring to here when it's talking about soon. And we need to understand that that doesn't mean that God is, is hiding his plans from us. He's not like, oh, it says soon, but it means this. That's not the idea here. He's not trying to confuse us or, or turn us into some like enigma decoders or anything like that. He's making known to us his plans for the future through the use of pictures and symbols. And he's doing it in such a way that everybody can understand it. Because you see there in verse 1, I don't know if we can go back to verse 1, but you have your Bibles in front of you, hopefully. But it says in verse 1 that this was shown and given to the servants, not to the scholars, not to the super intelligent people who have an IQ above this number, right? This isn't if you have a PhD or have gone to seminary, this book is for you. He gives it to his servants. Meaning, the good news for us is that everyone can understand the book of Revelation. And everyone is intended to understand the book of Revelation. In fact, I think I've told you this kind of in passing before, but it's been shown that children often understand the book of Revelation better than adults. Which is really interesting. But, but in some studies that have been done, it's been shown that the reason children tend to understand Revelation better is because their minds are more suited for that kind of thing, right? Kids are reading fantasy novels all the time. They're used to TV shows that are fantasy-based, where there's dragons and there's swords and there's serpents and all these weird creatures and there's things coming out of the skies and from down below and there's monsters and all this kind of stuff. And kids are used to that. And that's filled. Revelation has all of those things. It's filled with it. And so when they read Revelation, they have this idea, this, this mindset where they're able to put the pictures together and understand it better than adults. And not only that, there's this really famous story uh, where there was a, a group of seminary students. They were uh, PhD students, and they were at seminary, and they were playing basketball in the school gym, all right? This is a true story, by the way. They're playing basketball in the school gym, and they notice that the janitor is there sitting on the bleachers, and he's waiting for the students to leave so that he can clean up. And as he's sitting there waiting on them to leave, he's reading his Bible. And they're interested. They're like, okay, you know, it's very cool. He's reading his Bible. And then they go and look, and they see that he's reading Revelation. All right? So the seminary in them gets all puffed up. They're ready to show off their knowledge. And they go to the janitor, and they're like, hey, do you even understand what you're reading? He said, yeah, of course I do. And they said, okay, now we've really got to show this guy. So they're like, okay, well, what school of interpretation do you follow as you read Revelation? Are you a preterist? Are you a futurist? Are you a historicist? They start asking him all these questions using all these big words and stuff like that. They say, well, you tell us your school of interpretation. How do you follow it? Blah, blah, blah. You know, all this kind of stuff. He goes, I don't know anything you just said. I don't understand any of that. And they said, well, how can you understand Revelation? He said, because I read it. 
and I know what it means. And they said, okay, well, then tell us, what does it mean? And he said, Jesus wins. <laughs> I, I was like, that's such a good answer, right? That's such a good answer. And, and that's the whole point of the book, right? Like, if you look at, on our website, our series is literally called Revelation, the triumph of the Lamb. Jesus wins in the end. He will get the victory. God's kingdom will prevail. The gospel will go forward. All of God's plans will come to pass, and not a single one of them will fail. And so no matter what else we get confused about within the book of Revelation, we need to just keep that one, that one meaning in mind, that, that one idea that no matter what we read in Revelation, no matter how confusing it is, Jesus wins in the end. He has the victory. And that's a, a good message. And it's, it's one that's meant to, to strengthen us and strengthen our hearts as we read this book. And you see there very quickly in verses 2 and 3, I'll try to get through it, probably won't. Uh, it says, verse 2, uh, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Definitely not going to make it through verse 3, but let's just talk about verse 2 very quickly. I want you to notice here that John is given us not only what was given to him, but it says what he personally witnessed, what he saw. And so Revelation is a testimony, a testimony of what God has given uh, to John through Jesus, through the angel, but also what John witnessed for himself. And here's the reason I want to cover this very quickly, is because there's a bit of application here that often gets overlooked as we're reading Revelation. All right? So, so just think about the historical situation. Where is John when he's writing this? Patmos. Why is he there? He's been exiled, right? Who exiled him? Yeah, Jim, well, I mean, Rome. There you go. Yeah. Let's not get into dating the book, okay? <laughs> but a uh, whole other debate there that we don't need to have. It was Rome. Very good, Michael. So he's on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there by Rome. And he receives this vision and he records it. Then what does he do with it? After he writes it down, what does he do with it then? He sends it to the churches, the churches that were in Asia Minor, right? And don't miss this. Think about what's recorded in this book. Very clear messages like, Rome will fall. The emperor will fall. Every, uh, the emperor is under the influence of Satan. Every kingdom that sets itself against Christ will fall and be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Jesus will have the victory, and all who submit to him and follow him will overcome and take part in that victory. Now, here's my question for you. How do you think Rome was going to receive that once the word got out that that's what John had written and was sent into the churches, and the churches were supposed to send to each other, and then this message starts catching fire and gets spread like a wildfire. How do you think Rome's going to receive that? Not well, right? And actually, history tells us that they didn't receive it well because we know that persecution picked up dramatically. I mean, persecution started really picking up, and they were hunting Christians down like dogs, and and they were killing them, they were torturing them. I mean, we don't know if it was Nero or or someone else, but like we know for a fact that Nero used to take Christians and he would put them on spikes, he would cover them in oil, and then he would light them on fire and let them serve as street lamps to light up the roads at night. That's what happened to Christians. And here's John saying, the emperor is under the influence of Satan. Rome is going to fall, 
This kingdom has no chance. God will win. And yet, what did John still do? He sent it. Do you think John knew what could potentially happen if he sent this letter? Absolutely. They had already tried to boil him alive, keep in mind, and it failed. He's there because Rome did not like Christians in the first place. He knows full well what can happen when he sends this letter and the churches start to send the letter and the message gets out. And yet John sent the letter anyways. Now what lesson do you think we can learn from that? Okay, total lack of fear of the enemy. Anything else? Obedience? No matter the cost, never give up. Think specific. All those things are true. Specifically, what would be an application or a lesson that we to take away from that? Never deny Jesus. That's good. That's right. Preach the word even when people might retaliate. I mean, just think about what we've been talking about in gospel groups the past couple of weeks and something you know. One of the main reasons that we don't share our testimony or the testimony of Jesus, the gospel message like we should, is why? Fear. Right? We're afraid. We're afraid of how people are going to react. We're afraid of what they might say to us, what they might do to us, how we might be mocked or scorned or rejected. We're afraid of all these hypotheticals that we come up with in our minds about what could potentially take place if we share the gospel. And John was not even dealing with hypotheticals at all. He was dealing with what he knew was absolutely going to happen. And yet John sent the letter anyways. And see, this is what I think Revelation is trying to help us do here. It's, It's trying to show us that persecution is expected in this life. Suffering is expected in this life. Hardships, they are expected in this life. Rejection from the world, that's expected. Jesus said that. If they hated him, of course they're going to hate us, right? Like, that's expected. And yet, the Bible is saying here that Jesus and his gospel are worth it. They're worth it. And if you don't believe that, then you're going to give in to the fear, right? If you don't truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he is worth it and that the gospel truly does bring life to those who are dead in their sins, if you don't actually believe that, if it's still in the head and it hasn't made its way to the heart, there's no chance you're going to share the gospel unless it is very comfortable for you and you feel super safe and you think there's no way this can go wrong. But what happens when you're in that other situation? What happens when you're in that situation where something might go wrong? Like when you go to the Middle East and you're encountering people who are literally killing Christians for their faith and you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, what do you do then? You share the gospel. That's right. And it's hard to even imagine that situation because we're not used to it and everybody in here wants to say, well, of course I would share the gospel in that situation. I would never deny Jesus, all this kind of stuff. But gun to your head, it's hard to know how you'll respond unless you are absolutely sold out, 100% convinced, Jesus is God in the flesh. He died for my sins. He says I have eternal life right now. And even if they kill me, I get to go be with him immediately. That life that he offers me is more valuable than this temporary life now and the hardships that come with it. 
And so just as, as we conclude this evening, I just want us to imagine, what do you think this world would look like? And what do you think the church would actually look like today if we had the type of obedience that John had here? And the type of boldness and courage that John had here? If we actually believed that Jesus and his gospel were worth it, and that the Holy Spirit was powerful enough to even take someone who was ready to kill us for our faith and change that person even in that moment. How different do you think our world and our church would look if Christians actually believed that message? So that's the beginning. Uh, I thought we'd make it through verse 8 because, you know, I'm crazy. But uh, we're going to continue to see as we study the unfolding of God's plan and how that strengthens us as believers and, and really helps us make it through all of life's difficulties. So just remember, Jesus wins in the end. All right, Gene McKinney, final word of wisdom, please. 